Well, good morning to each one. I want to greet you in Jesus' precious name. I want to extend a special welcome to each of the visitors that are here. We hope you feel welcome and that you can participate and, and worship with us, and I hope you have already. Thank you, Brother Troy, for that song. I am blessed as we look at the words of songs that we sing. Teach me, O Lord, thy way. Teach me, O Lord, thy way of truth, and from it I will not depart, that I may steadfastly obey. Give me an understanding heart. And I, I just trust and pray that that is our desire this morning as we open the Lord, open God's word and, and see what he has for us. Over the past number of weeks, my mind has been drawn to the teachings of Jesus, specifically what we call the Sermon on the Mount, and we find that in Matthew 5. And as I look at his teachings here and think about him teaching the multitudes, his disciples, and also there were other people there, I have been challenged and I have been blessed. And so I invite you to Matthew 5, and I would like to look at the first 12 verses this morning. This is a very familiar passage, and possibly most of you can say this passage by memory. But I think it does us well to look back over these teachings and really consider what the Lord would have for us. What is he teaching us, and are we applying them? these teachings to our lives. So a very simple title this morning for the message is just The Beatitudes, because that's what this portion of um, the scripture is, is referred to. Matthew 5, 1 to 12. And in most of these verses, Jesus begins with a word, blessed. And as we think of that word today, and we think of what many people um, consider when they think of someone that is blessed or blessed. What do they think of? I think a lot of times a person's mind um, may go to financial blessings. That if someone is getting along um, very well financially, maybe has got a new job, someone may say, well, they are blessed. They've been blessed. But does that really determine whether a person is blessed? Is that what Jesus is talking about? Being blessed financially? Or is he talking about something different? There's a def definition in the Webster's that had more of a religious idea. It says, such as being held in reverence or enjoying happiness, specifically Christianity, enjoying the bliss of heaven. That is where we will ultimately experience a blessing, is when we are with Christ in heaven. But I believe we can be blessed and know what it is to be blessed even today. I have read, and maybe you have read this before too, that the Beatitudes are beautiful attitudes. 
And again, as I had noted, a lot of people consider that a person is blessed if things are going well in their life, if they are experiencing good things. But as we will read these verses, we see that's not always what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking that things are going just perfectly in a person's life. But he still says that that person can be blessed. Blessed. I believe when we sit, when we meditate and read Scripture, we can truly learn what it is to be blessed, to be happy and thankful and content, no matter what we are experiencing outwardly. Someone else has said that being in jail with Jesus is better than being the jailer without Jesus. And we know that very familiar account, and I've referred to it numerous times, of Paul and Silas in prison. They are singing praises to God because they are filled with the Spirit. They were filled with, with God, with joy, because of what he had done for them. Not because they weren't happy because they were in prison, but they were happy because they had a song in their heart that God had given them. And who was the unhappy person? It was the jailer. He was begging, asking, what must I do to be saved? Which is the real secret of being blessed. Salvation through Christ. As we get ready to read these verses, I want us to think a little bit about the setting. You find it interesting that while Jesus did stop and read and so on in the synagogue, where do we find most of his teachings taking place? But it's out on the hillside. And just as he didn't have a place to call home, to lay his head, as the scripture says, neither did he have necessarily a set place to teach. But here, once again, we find him on the hillside, on a mountain, teaching the people. So let's read these verses in Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. So I want to look at each of these verses that talk about how a person can be blessed or blessed. And so we see the first one here in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. So I wonder if someone came up to you and asked you a question and said, are you poor in spirit or do you want to be poor in spirit? What would your response be? Do you think that's a good thing? 
What does it mean to be poor in spirit? You know, we want to be filled with the Spirit as a Christian, right? And to be filled with the Spirit isn't... That, that seems kind of like the opposite of being poor in spirit. But I think it's two different things. Being poor in spirit is our attitude, maybe, in, on life. Being humble. He wants us to realize, Jesus wants us to realize just how insufficient... We are in and of ourselves. Are we thinking proudly of ourselves or, or do we have a humble mindset? Do we realize that we can't be good enough, do enough good things on our own to be saved? As we go through these verses, I would wanting to use different examples that we find in the scripture that kind of that my mind has gone to, to, to think about and, and to use to help us see how that person was um, practicing or was, was acting in this way. So an example that I think about for being poor in spirit, being humble, not thinking of oneself more highly than he should, is... In Matthew 9, verses 20 to 22, and you don't need to turn to all these scriptures if you don't care to, most of the examples will be fairly familiar. But there was a lady here in Matthew 9 that had been sick for 12 years, and the physicians couldn't help her anymore. And she had an idea that maybe if she went to Jesus, Jesus could help her. But she didn't just go walking boldly up to Jesus and say, heal me. She had a different mindset. What did she determine to do? <clears throat> I turned to the wrong chapter here, excuse me. Verse 21, for she saith within herself, if I may but touch his garment, I shall behold, be, he, be whole. Sorry. So that's what she did. She reached and just slowly or however reached out and just touched him. Didn't make a big scene, a very humble approach. And yet she had faith in that approach, in that Jesus could heal her of this sickness that she had for 12 years. Did Jesus heal her? Could he heal her? <clears throat> of course he did. Jesus turned about, and when he saw her, he said, Daughter, be of good comfort, for thy faith hath made thee whole. And the woman was made whole from that hour. So we see a very simple approach, maybe a lowly approach, humble approach. Yet Jesus recognized that approach. And healed this lady. There was also a man in Matthew 8. He was a centurion, which was a commander, a Roman commander. He had a hundred soldiers under him. He was used to commanding people to do things for him, to serve him. And yet he had a servant that was very sick, and he came to Jesus and asked Jesus to heal him, to heal this servant. And Jesus prepares to go with 
the centurion to, to heal his servant. And the centurion says, no, 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 wait. Matthew 8, verse 8, the centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. Again, I think of someone being poor in spirit. This man was used to showing authority, and yet he realized just how lowly he was and did, felt unworthy, said, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. Verse 10, when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. I believe we could consider this centurion to be poor in spirit. Someone else my mind goes to is John the Baptist. In John 3.30, he said, He must increase, speaking of Jesus, but I must decrease. Again, showing, realizing the perspective, the proper perspective, the authority that Jesus had, the, the honor that should be given him. How do we think of ourselves? Can we identify with these examples? What do other people see when they look at our lives? A lot of times, others know us and see us differently than we see ourselves. Do they see someone that is poor in spirit? Or do they see someone that is proud? What is the blessing that is promised to those who are poor in spirit? It says, for theirs is the kingdom of God. We get to be part of God's kingdom. And that is where real joy and happiness can be experienced. The next verse, verse 4 of Matthew 5. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Again, we don't think of mourning as being something that we want to do much. It's a sad thing. We may tend to think that someone is blessed if they are joyful and happy and things are going well, right? but not someone that is mourning. Why would Jesus call someone blessed who is mourning? Again, I think it is good for us to consider what Jesus may be talking about here. I believe he is talking about our response to the realization that just how helpless, how hopeless man is without God if we are mourning, if we are sorrowful because we know we are a helpless person, that we are born with a sin nature and that we can't do anything good enough to save ourselves, and that when we confess our sins, sinfulness and helplessness to God, we then can be blessed. We then can be comforted as the ending of that verse speaks about. For an example, my mind goes to the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. Lazarus laid at the rich man's gate. I believe he was mourning. He was sorrowful. He was hurting. He had sores. The dogs licked his sores. It's a pretty awful sight that we can picture in our mind. And the rich man didn't want to offer too much help to this poor man. 
man that was definitely needing help. But what does scripture record of this poor Lazarus now? As we read there in Luke 16, talks of him being in the bosom of Abraham. I think he has a place of comfort now. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Lazarus is comforted. You know, mourning is something that we don't enjoy doing. We don't like to about doing that too often. But I think we do that as we think about reality. And this morning, I think that Jesus wants us to do is that realization of how lost and helpless we are, as I already mentioned. And yet many people want to avoid that and they avoid being able to, to stop and think and allow the spirit to, to work in their life by, that, by being extra busy, maybe. By doing things that take their mind off of reality, of what is actually um, happening in their life. And so they use all different forms or all different things to distract them from thinking about reality and how lost they are. So they may use entertainment, different forms of entertainment or alcohol or drugs can be used to keep them from thinking seriously about life. But it is wonderful that we have an opportunity to confess our sins and find forgiveness, which brings comfort. Another example of someone who did this was Zacchaeus in Luke 19, 1 through 10. You know, he wanted to see Jesus. He wanted to learn from Jesus. And the crowds were gathered around and Zacchaeus was a short man. He didn't think he would be able to see Jesus. So he climbs up in a tree and Jesus stops and notices him and says, come down. I want to go to your house today. And as Zacchaeus realizes his need of Jesus, he accepts him as his savior. And it made such a change in his life. And he says, half my goods I give to the poor. And if I have wronged anyone, I will reimburse them. I believe it is four times. I didn't write it down here. Of what I have wronged them. Of drastic change in attitude. Once he realized just how lost and empty he was without Christ. And then when Christ filled him with love and care. For others, he was a different man. Do you think Zacchaeus found comfort in Christ? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What is meekness? Meekness is not weakness, but controlled strength. The meek are those who quietly submit to God, who follow his directions and comply with his designs and are gentle toward all men. Are we meek? Are we submitting to God? Do we follow his directions? Obviously, when we think of a meek person, our mind may go to Moses because in Numbers 12:3. The verse says, Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. So Moses was a meek man. 
And what defined his meekness? How do we know that he was meek? There are numerous examples that we could look at in his life that prove his meekness. In Exodus 17, the people were murmuring against God and against Moses because they were thirsty and they they needed something to drink. And, And obviously we do need to drink and they needed to drink. But their attitude wasn't very polite or considerate. So God told Moses what to do. And Moses led them to a rock, and he struck that rock with the rod like God told him to do, and water came out. You may also recall a time, and and there's many different accounts, just in the life of Moses, but um, after the spies came back from Canaan the first time, in Numbers 14, they shared the report, and the people once again began to murmur. They were scared to go in to Canaan because of the report that 10 of those spies shared. They didn't want to listen to the other two, Caleb and Joshua. And they started murmuring against God. Verse 12 of number 14, God says, I will smite them with the pestilence and disinherit them and will make of thee, talking to Moses, a great nation and mightier, mightier than they. How did Moses respond to this thing that God said he would do for Moses? In verses 17 to 20, Moses asked God to pardon the people. He didn't say, oh, great, I'll have my own nation that's mightier than than the children of Israel. No. He bowed before God and pleaded for these people that were murmuring against him that were blaming him for the things they were facing. And it wasn't Moses' fault. He was just following God's will. He was being submissive to God. And yet he was being accused. And at the same time, he loved these people enough that he was willing to plead to God on their behalf. Moses had a difficult task in leading these people. But God gave him the strength to carry out that task as long as he, as long as Moses remained submissive to God's will. Moses was a meek man. Verse six, bless, six, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. For that hunger and thirst after a purity of heart and restitude of life. Conformity of heart and life to the divine law. So, Do we hunger and thirst after these things, after living the way that God wants us to live? Is that our desire every day? Do we find people around us that desire this anymore? People that truly hunger and thirst after righteousness. Are there people like that? Yes, there are. And it's a blessing when we find people like that. Years ago when we were in Puerto Rico, I don't believe I shared this here before. There was an older gentleman that was a professor in one of the universities down there that lived an hour and a half from from the mission churches. And he was someone that was beginning to hunger or, or was hungering and thirsting after righteousness. He was a member of um, another church down there. 
But yet he desired to, to live a little differently. He had come to the States when he was young to go to college in New York State and had made a friend or friends there and became a Christian when he was, was here in the States, actually, if I remember correctly. And one of his friends that he remained in contact with from that time sent him some of David Berceau's books. And he was reading through them. And as he read through Acts, he was wondering, is there a people that still practice some of these teachings or these teachings that he finds in Acts? And are there people like um, what he was um, reading about some that David Berceau was, was challenging him with in his books? And so he contacted David Berceau's office and he asked this, are there any churches like this anymore, specifically in Puerto Rico? And, and they got gave him some contact information. This was before our time. But um, of, the, of the churches there. And I think it went a number of months, I think years, before he contacted one of the people there in Puerto Rico. And then soon after we moved down there, he became a member of the church there. But he was someone that was hungering and thirsting after righteousness. He wasn't satisfied with where he was at. He wanted to grow more. And it was the Spirit working within him and his reading of Scripture that inspired him to keep on growing. It wasn't because the the mission churches were, were in contact with him. They didn't know about him. But yet, the Spirit knew. And his desire to grow allowed him to continue to grow in righteousness. And he has been a blessing there. He now lives in the DR and is helping with the mission work over there. Do we hunger and thirst after righteousness? Do we hunger and thirst after right living? You know, there are many people that are hungering and thirsting and seeking after great things in this world. And they don't consider hungering and thirsting after righteousness a very great thing. But what do we do? How do we live? Another example I thought about, maybe this one's a little bit crude. But thinking about hungering and thirsting, truly having a desire for living the way God wants me to live. And then as I learn and apply those things, still continuing to to hunger and thirst and find contentment and joy, as this verse promises in verse 6, they shall be filled. And I think of being filled as being content. Just last weekend, we went with some family to tour a farm, not far from here, but they, they do rotational grazing there on that farm. And the tour guide was giving instructions on different ways to know the proper amount of area needed to graze your herd every day, because every day they go out and move the fence and move the herd to a new area. And you didn't want to overgraze, but um, neither did you want to necessarily put them in too big of an area either. And so this tour guide said, obviously, one of the ways to know that you have given um, a proper amount is when you go, or a sufficient area, is when you go the next day to move the fence and move the herd to the next area, you find them still content and happy, not at the fence, just 
begging to, to move to the next area. And that is something that I found interesting as we were there observing the cattle. They would be moved later that day, I believe, the tour guide said. And we saw a lot of just very content cattle. They were just laying there in the pasture, contentedly chewing their cud. And it wasn't because they had a huge smorgasbord of corn and oats and wheat and all the other things to eat. They just had grass and water, but they were content. What all do we need to find contentment? Are we content with hungering and thirsting after living the way God wants us to live? Hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Does that bring contentment to you and to I? It should and it can. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. We have a very familiar story in Matthew 18, 23 to 35, where a, a man was forgiven much, a debt that he couldn't repay, and he begs the king to let him um, off, to forgive him. and says he will pay it back, but don't put him in prison right now. And the king says, I have forgiven you. And yet, this servant goes out, and what does he ask of someone that owes him just a little bit? But he tells them they must pay it all right away, and they, they, they beg for mercy too. And this first servant says, no, put you in prison. He had no mercy for that person, for that person that owed him money. You just read just a little bit at the end, verses 23 to 35. So the Lord of that first servant, um, verse 31, so when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then the Lord, after he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt, because thou desirest me. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servants, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. Are we merciful? Do we forgive? Jesus said we will be blessed if we are. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. You know, God has forgiven us such a great debt, a debt we can never pay. Do we pass mercy on, love and forgiveness on to others? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What are Jesus' teachings on purity? Many of the people that Jesus was teaching on this mountain, they were familiar with the emphasis that the Pharisees were putting on purity. They said, you need to make sure you wash your hands however often and however which way. 
they had a form of cleanliness. And, and that wasn't all bad. It was good for them to be clean outwardly. But they put such an emphasis on the outward cleansing that they forgot the importance of an inward cleansing. <clears throat> John 3, 3, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We need to be cleansed on the inside. We need to have a pure heart. And the only way we have a pure heart is through the blood of Christ. How does this teaching of Christ differ from what the world's teaching is on purity? You know, people in the world say, and I've heard say, it doesn't really matter what you think about. It's okay to have impure thoughts, just don't act on them. Is that okay? You can't have a pure heart if you have impure thoughts. And as I was thinking about this, thinking about the music that the world has to offer, how much of it is pure? Is it okay to listen to music like that that's talking about things that make us think about impure things? Can we have a pure heart if our mind is full of that type of music? Because we're not only hearing those songs when they're playing, but songs go through our mind as we work and so on. What are we filling our minds with? What are we filling our hearts with? Do we think it's okay to be basically pure and not all pure? That's not what Jesus says here. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 2 Timothy 2.22, flee also youthful lusts. We know what those are, right? Some. Paul says flee from them, but follow righteousness. This is something different. The opposite of following after those lusts is to live righteously, to have faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. James 3.17, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. And 1 Peter 1.22, seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. Purity what God asks of us. Blessed are the pure in heart, for then they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Are we a peacemaker? Do we like peace? We like when people are peaceful and, and kind to us, right? But do we pass that on? To others. We must know what peace is before we can be a peacemaker. I came across a writing by Thomas Watson, and he says, it's interesting to read, I'll read it here. God the Son is called the Prince of Peace. We read that in Isaiah 9:6. He came into the world with a song of peace, and that's what the angels were singing, right? Peace on earth, or on earth peace. 
he went out of the world with a legacy of peace. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Christ's earnest prayer was for peace. He prayed that his people might be one. Christ not only prayed for peace, but bled for peace. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, he died not only to make peace between God and man, but between man and man. God wants us to be peaceful people, to be peacemakers, to make sure that we are having a good relationship between brother to brother, sister to sister, good relationships in the church and in the community. Are we known as peacemakers? An interesting passage that is actually later on in, in this chapter of Matthew 5, talking about having peace between men. Matthew 5, 23 and 24, Jesus says, Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee. So what's this person doing? He's going to offer a, a type of sacrifice or going to worship God. So if we come to worship, we go to worship. And remember that someone has ought against us. Verse 24, leave there thy gift before the altar. He says, don't continue worshiping. But go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother. And then come and offer thy gift. I think right there we see the importance of being a peacemaker. Of how God wants us to live. To have peace with our fellow men. You know, it's something that we often talk about at communion. Do we have peace with our fellow men? Or do we have peace every day? And if we don't, are we a peacemaker and do we go and make sure we do our part so that we can? I think a good example of a peacemaker, one good example, was Jonathan. And again, I've referred to him already in messages. You know, he could have been pretty bitter about what all was happening in his life that his friend was getting going to be the next king instead of him. But that's not what we read at all about his life. He was a peacemaker. He accepted God's will. And he made the best of it. And one of his best friends was David. The one that was going to be king in his place. I think that is a true peacemaker. Can we be friends with those that maybe, you know, it feels like, well, thinking about Jonathan, you know, just what was happening there between Jonathan and David. But yet Jonathan could be a friend, could be a peacemaker. In James 3, there's a number of verses that, talk about some of these different things that we are talking about. The first part, it talks about envying and strife and where that comes from. And the last part about living how God wants us to live. I want to read these verses, James 3, verses 13 to 18. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? But let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. Now, but if ye have bitter envyings and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. 
This wisdom descendeth not from above. These envyings and strife don't come from above. But they are earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. So if we are going to live peaceably, if we are going to be known as someone who is gentle and easy to be entreated, full of mercy, different of these things that we've already talked about. Verse 18 says, The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. So we need to be a peacemaker so that we can do some of these other things that God calls us to do. These next few verses kind of, in some ways, repeat themselves. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you. So again, talking about persecution. And shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Is that a pleasant place to be? Do we enjoy when people falsely accuse us? It's pretty hard, isn't it? But if they do, how do we respond? Are we able to think back? Are we a peacemaker? Do we show mercy and love? Are we meek? Do we remember what all we have been forgiven of? so that we can forgive when people do those types of things against us? Or do we respond harshly? Talking about being persecuted for living right, for righteousness' sake. 2 Timothy 2.12, If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. And so our mind can go to several men who were faithful unto the end whether they were killed right away or not. Um, John the Baptist, he was willing to speak up against Herod because Herod had taken his brother's wife, Herod's brother's, Philip's wife. And so he was put in prison for it, for speaking the truth. Herod didn't like it. Put him in prison. And later, had him beheaded. Seems unfair, doesn't it? But if we suffer, we shall also reign with him. Now we can also think about Daniel. He faithfully prayed to God. He was a good witness in his prayer life. He's a challenge to me to be that faithful in praying that his friends knew that he would continue doing it. And so they set a trap for him. And he endured a form of persecution, being thrown into the lion's den. Obviously, we know the story. He wasn't killed there because an angel shut the lion's mouth. But yet, he didn't know what was going to happen. But he was willing to do what was right and to face persecution. Daniel's three friends, 
not willing to bow down to the image, were thrown into a fiery furnace that was made even hotter because the king was so angry. Again, God did protect them. But they were facing persecution. And they responded in the proper way. How do we respond? Do we feel blessed? As verse 11 says, when men revile us, persecute us, say evil things about us, do we still show love, joy, and mercy? Verse 12, rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. And it's so true that if we realize just how short a span of time we actually spend here on earth in comparison to eternity and the joy and peace that awaits us there just as we we looked at or thought about um, Lazarus. You know, he endured hardship here for whatever reason he was in that place. And yet, according to scripture, he's over there enjoying peace and tranquility. So can we endure? Can we respond to these different situations we face in the proper way and rejoice and be glad, remembering that our reward is great in heaven if we are faithful? Another scripture that come, came to mind. And then Hebrews 13.5, Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as ye have. For he has said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. I think that can bring us true comfort and joy as we remember that no matter what we face, as we go throughout life, God has promised to never leave us or forsake us. Shall we have a song?